Good morning. Twenties and thirties, you may, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Book recommendation uh, by Dean Taylor, The Thriving Church, an exposition of Ephesians chapter four, good book to read concerning what is a healthy church. Sleep well last night? How many slept well last night? Very good. How many got, yeah, mediocre? How many got really, really bad? Yeah, that's okay. It's only day one. We're good. Oh boy, love camp, love camp. All right, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Today uh, is going to be this morning a little bit of a kind of a serious subject. Um, I hope it's interesting and compelling and helpful. Um, Sandy and I were heading to the National Conference of DRBC. Was it last summer, dear? I think so. Headed to Galena, Illinois for a couple of a couple day romantic getaway before the conference. Well, that didn't happen. Well, it, it didn't. Well, let me explain myself. Now, we, had, we had a great first day and had a wandered town. I have an explanation for that. Whew. She had a gallbladder attack the first night is what I'm telling you. So we, we had a great day planned for Saturday, enjoyed Friday, and headed home and uh, how'd you sleep? And she, she, she has a high threshold for pain, and she was really hurting. So we headed home and kind of cut our trip short. I think she's allergic to national conferences because three years prior to that, she had an emergency appendectomy in Maryland, and so um, we didn't go to the conference this year. We're here instead. <laughs> Much safer to be at camp. So we, we drove home from Galena, Illinois, and... Um, that was something new for her, a uh, gallbladder attack, and pretty serious. We went in and think, well, the gallbladder's going to have to come out. Um, but we got some assessment done, and uh, they did one round of tests and said, yeah, there's something going on. The second round said, let's do this, and they run some nuclear-based fluid through you and found out her gallbladder's functioning fine. They didn't take it out, which I was grateful for but you're gonna to have to radically change your diet. And so that was what came from that. And my point is, sometimes we need to kind of assess where we are in our health. We do that a little bit this morning. We look at the church at Ephesus, so open your Bible to Revelation 2. Um, I hope it's encouraging and helpful this morning. We look at Revelation 2. Uh, we'll start at Revelation 1 and read into the first part of chapter 2. Begin reading in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom and a priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus." Oh, the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write these, what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and, tur and turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands was like, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool and like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar 
of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, and write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lamps, and the seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at the first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the words of the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." A little background before we get to this, uh, Christ promised in Matthew 16 to build his churches. I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Build them on the person of Christ, those who make a profession of faith in him. From Pentecost to the rapture is his body called the church, they will profess faith in him. It belongs to him, it's his church. It's a powerful force against the forces of darkness and God uses people to build it. We understand the mission of the church in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations to make followers of Jesus, though who know him, love him, and obey him. Christ authorized the mission, he commands the mission, prioritized the mission, and clarified the mission to, by going and baptizing, by teaching, we make disciples. He gave the scope of the mission is to the end of the age and to the end of the world, and empowered the mission by promising to be with us. See, the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, you see uh, Acts chapter two was the first church in Jerusalem. You see the establishment of the church in the book of Acts as the gospel begins to spread. Communication to the churches, all the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. We're going to trace one called the church in Ephesus. We heard a little, bit, little about it last night. And uh, in AD 52, in Acts 18, it planted on Paul's second missionary journey. Acts 19, the church is growing under Paul's teaching. Acts 20 was a fair, well addressed to the Ephesian elders where he instructs them and warns them and commends them to the Lord. In AD 62, the book of Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus, Paul commending them for their faith and their love, reminding them of their wealth, their walk, their work, and their warfare. That's an interesting series of the book of Ephesians. They had amazing pastors. I mean, if you put pictures on a wall, they would have Timothy, Paul, Aquila, Apollos, probably the most taught church in the New Testament, probably the strongest church and a model church of a thriving church. That was AD 62. In AD 96, they get this letter. Uh, this is Ephesians 2. We know not a lot about the other six churches. We know a little bit about the church at Ephesus because it was a book to them and Paul wrote about them. About 40 years has passed, maybe 35 years or so, not a long time, and the church is not doing so well. Two of the churches here are, one is suffering, that's Smyrna, Philadelphia is a steadfast church. Five churches are not doing so well. Pergamum was a seduced and settled down church. Thyatira was a sexually immoral church. Sardis was the sleeping church that needed to wake up, and Laodicea was a self-sufficient church. Ephesus was a straying church, having left their first love and the first works. Uh, all had seen better days. There had been declines, some doctrinal, some dysfunctional, some distracted, some divisive, some dying. 
no longer a healthy, vibrant, growing church. Now, these are real churches in Revelation 2, real churches that existed in the time of John, all had a relationship with the Lord. They're representative, I think, of churches throughout the ages, and a relevant message to us today. If you look at chapter 1, blessed are those that read and hear and keep these things. Now, you notice that the, this is a revelation about Jesus Christ. The word revelation, the word apocalypse. What do you think of, think of apocalypse? Well, you think of end-time catastrophic events and movies that talk about the end of the world stuff. But it actually means something bigger than that. It, it, it's the word apocalypso, means an unveiling, to remove the lid. It's an unveiling of the person of Christ and what he did with the churches and the end time events. So it's more than apocalyptic catastrophic events. Well, there's something about Christ we hadn't seen before. It's an unveiling about him. So Jesus Christ is the focus of the book of Revelation. It's an unveiling about him and what he says to his churches, first of all. So there's an interesting meeting for us here today. It's from the triune God, it's through the Apostle John, to the churches and to the messengers. You look at chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. That is the messenger or the pastor of the church. He's also called a star. Not meaning a celebrity, <laughs> but he's the light bearing. So he's the messenger, the angel. So he writes a message to the messenger that the churches would hear it. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So through the messenger to the churches, Christ speaks to the churches that he still loves. So what would Christ say to the church at Ephesus? What would he say to them? Well, they were not the church they used to be. And likely they never thought they'd end up here. They were a model church at one time. Actually, none of the churches were aware of their spiritual condition. In fact, you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, the end of the church is Sardis. And this, is, this church has something going on. It said, I know your works. You have a name. You have a name. A reputation among churches that you're just really something. But you're actually dead. And wake up and strengthen what remains. So here's a church living off their past name and reputation, and actually they were about to die and needed to wake up. So a little bit of context here. When Sandy and I were saved about 40 years ago, uh, after a short career as a civil engineer, we, we went to faith for four years from 83 to 1987. Started pastoring in 1986 in South Des Moines. I pastored there until 1990, went to Carroll, Iowa for 24 years, and then nine years ago became, became the state rep of the Iowa Regular Baptist Churches. Sandy, for six years, has been the Dean of Women at Faith, and prior to that, she worked for three years in the bookstore, and God is using her to invest in a lot of young ladies and sometimes young men. Now, they stop in sometimes, too. Sometimes men need a mom with some counsel, normally about girls. Yeah, it's okay with that. And I remember 10 years ago this fall, the council of 10 came to me and said, Tim, would you like to consider maybe being the state rep? I said, absolutely not. Why would, I want to, why would anybody want to do that? Well, here I am. God changed our heart, gave us a burden for the churches of our state. There are 94 churches in our fellowship. and began a journey. And they asked me a question. They said, Tim, what do you think is the greatest need of our churches? I said, well, I could probably answer that, but it might be premature until I've been in the churches. So we spent a couple of years, Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning, being all of our churches to get a perspective of what the trends were. What we found was like the church at Ephesus, churches that before in the 1960s, 70s, 80s were kind of in their prime. There were the glory years, a lot of churches planted, established, built new buildings, look at the cornerstones, I would say 1960-something. Built new churches, they were, that were the glory days of our recent movement and fundamentalism. And now those days were gone. We were saved in 1983, began to see kind of the waning of that, and churches used to have 150 people, now growing, growing down to about 30. And that was common in our fellowship, and even beyond our fellowship across the country, a decline. And the reality was a decline over the last few decades in the number of churches and the number of people in our churches, a, a lessening vibrancy, uh, kind of a growing dysfunctionality. Not, a, not everyone, but that was the trend 
Churches smaller and less vibrant than they used to be. Many of them not seen a person saved for years. And all because I asked them. And some of them not troubled by that. And I, I came across reading Revelation 2 and I thought, you know, we're kind of like the church at Ephesus. Our movement is kind of like that, where we used to be vibrant and growing and thriving and reproducing. And in 35 years, we're this. I think I can identify with, church, with Ephesus. They used to be vibrant and growing and thriving. And now they're just a good fundamental church, but they've lost some things along the way. So Jesus writes them another letter. So what would he say to them? Well, we're going to find out today what he would say to them. And so you have your notes in front of you. And I think what we have is a roadmap to revitalization. Uh, Ephesians 4 is about building his body. This is about reclaiming bodies that have declined. They may not be true of your church. That'd be the exception. Now, a lot of churches are turning the corner, reclaiming great, great commission focus. But that's been the trend, even across our country. Bible-even churches across the country have declined in a great commission focus and smaller in number, aging congregation. I'm okay with getting older. Uh, that's okay. That's better than the option. Could the rapture be okay, right? That'd be okay. But aging congregations, some with no kids, some without a baptism or a conversion of adult in years or sometimes. I asked one church, when's the last time you had an adult say They said, well... 10, maybe 20 years, I said, wow. Some, even large churches, it's not confined to small churches, some large churches said, well, uh, maybe one the last year, they couldn't think of a name. And I came across this passage, you know, this becomes kind of us. So what would we do? How, do we, how does Christ reclaim churches that have strayed? So the church Ephesus becomes a model for that. So let's look at what he would say to them. This is the trend that I've seen. This becomes a template, I think, for a biblical road to revitalizing a church. And to give you some tools today along the way, this is going to take some time. When you're sick and recovering, you don't recover in a day. Work with a lot of churches and mission agencies to come alongside and partner and say, help us. We will help you reclaim what's been lost. And church, we want to do that. So this is going to take three to five years to get healthy again. And I work with some pastors who understand it, bring it to their church, and they said, no, I think we're okay, or that sounds like a lot of work, and it is. And they push back on it. It's gonna take some time, take some hard effort, but Christ here building his church and here promising to breathe new life into churches that are not what they used to be. It becomes a good biblical romance. So let's begin our journey today and what he would say. Number one, Jesus calls them to attention. He spends the whole first chapter and part of each of the chapters to get their attention. They had not listening. So verse, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads and who hears and keeps these things. He said in verse 11 of chapter 1, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then chapter 2, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You need to listen in every letter. It's like Moses in the Shema, he says, listen up and pay attention. I think a lot of churches became sleepy over the years. In fact, the church of Sardis, living off their former reputation and their name, had actually about died and needed to be wake, awakened and repent and do the first works. Could it be that they weren't listening? The church of Laodicea had locked Jesus out. Church at Ephesus, busy working but unaware that they'd abandoned some things along the way. So what's it going to take to get our attention? And I work with a lot of churches in transitions to pastors, and I remember one church, um, a former professor of mine was their interim pastor, and um, he called me and said, Tim, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm not sure I know what to do either. He said, they're very happy having me fill the pulpit. There's 17 people here, and I had a business meeting and said, what needs to change? And a man with a loud voice up would say, hey, we're good. Nothing's to change. He sat down and he said, I don't know what to do. I said, give them an ultimatum, and you're just enabling them. And so he stayed for a bit, and off he went. They called someone else to fill the pulpit, they're happy and content not being vibrant. And it was pushed back. 
and didn't get their attention. I remember um, preaching one time in South Des Moines and did that one time and right here was an old lady. Josh, you're not an old lady, but you're just the closest person here and I don't want to call your wife that because that would be really, really bad. <laughs> I already said we didn't have a romantic weekend, so I have to recover from that. But it woke Verdine up. I mean, this, this part, she'd fallen asleep, and I said, Verdine, I'm so sorry. It, it woke, but it got her attention. She was listening. So what's it going to take to wake us up? Our churches sometimes are dying, declining, not seeing people saved in a long time. We're not even working at it, and we're okay with that. And, and Jesus is trying to get their attention. If you look at how he speaks to John. He said in verse 12, I, I, see, I, t- I turned to see the voice speaking, and he, he shouted with a trumpet. With a loud voice and voice of the roar of many waters, he couldn't help but pay attention. He said, you need to listen to me. He blew the trumpet and voice like a rush of many waters. And John said, I'm listening. What's it going to take? Uh, when my dad was alive he, and I was a young boy, he, he, he didn't invent power napping, but he's really perfected it. He, he, could, he could lay on the floor with his head behind his you know, hands like this, and boy, he was out. It was my job to wake him for supper. And he'd go, Poof, so I'd touch his feet and jump because it was dangerous to wake up my dad when he was sleeping. Sometimes people wake up, we're grumpy and mad and groggy and startled and denial. We just don't know where we are, but we have to pay attention. Declining numbers, divisiveness, nobody getting saved, shrinking budgets, dusty baptism tanks, sometimes used for storage. Uh, One pastor who was evangelistic pastor came to a church and kind of turned things around. And he he asked a young guy who's running the sound booth and he said, "Um, how come the lights don't work in the bathroom? He said, well, it's okay. We never use it anyway. He said, that is going to change and it got their attention. So he gets their attention. I hope you're listening. We need to listen to Jesus and get attention. Secondly, Jesus gives them assurances. He's gonna say some hard things to them. And he prefaces that with a whole chapter reminding them of who he is and how he loves them. Look at verse, chapter one, verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, is to come. Reminds us of who he is and all of his glory, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was the Almighty, and he, what he's done for us, and he has freed us from our sins. And look at verse five, six, to him who loves us, not loved us, but loves us still. If you have kids, you love them no matter what. Even if they stray and disappoint, you love them because they're your kids. You love them to the end. He never stopped loving his church. He still loves them. And then John saw him and thought he had died. He saw the resurrected Christ in all of his glory. I, th- I think I just died. <laughs> and Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and said, John, it's okay. Don't be afraid. It's me. It's me, Jesus. I rose from the dead, and the keys of death and hell. I could breathe life into these churches. It's okay. Those are amazing words of assurances. And then it says later in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, He walks among the seven golden lamps. But now that we know the lamps are the churches. They're to be light bearers of the truth to the communities. He's walking in their midst. A good question to ask your kids, where did, where's Jesus? Hmm. Well, right hand of the Father, and everywhere, in the heart of the believers that, that know him, and in, in his churches, he walks in their midst. So when you gather the church, Jesus is walking in your midst. He's, he's always present. He was still walking in their midst. He never left them. Now, the church at Laodicea had locked him out. It's not evangelistic for it to open your heart and knock on the door. He said they locked him out of their church. Doing church without Jesus. Imagine that. And so he, he says that he loves them. And he walks. He still is present with them. 
And then he says he holds the stars in his right hand. Now, the stars are the messengers, they're the angels, they're the pastors. So pastors, he, they, Jesus holds you in his right hand, a position of responsibility, of, of honor. He's protecting you, using you, directing you, controlling you, speaking. You're there to do his bidding. You belong to him, you serve him, you're doing it for him. Uh, he holds you in his hand. He still loves them. So he gives them hope that he's not done with them. He, has, he's something he wants to do, and so he gives them assurances. Before he says something really, really hard, he said, I can give you life again. I love you, I'm here, I'm in your midst, I'm holding your pastors. He gives them assurances. Then, three, number three, he said, Jesus gives them his assessment. Let's see how you're doing. This is a divine assessment of the real health. Now, they were not aware, every church was not aware of what they really were like, so Jesus gives him his assessment, and we need to do that too. How are we doing spiritually as a church? Are we willing to take a look uh, at, at how we're doing? Sometimes you just need someone else's opinion, like the gallbladder. We lived in Ketchikan, Alaska for a couple of years. I was a civil engineer building a hydro plant in the wilderness of Alaska, living my dream, having a good time, and we had, um, Angela was, uh, she was about a year, a little under two years old, and Sandy was expecting Danny in that summer. And um, got close to birth, or birth time, and she had a sharp pain and um, went to the doctor. This is back in, we still had medical treatments back in the 80s. We still had doctors and hospitals. But ultrasounds were pretty new. They were pretty not decisive. And so they're an ultrasound and... Uh, she, they, the sharp pain was her bladder was distended, something was blocking it, figured it, she had a, a, a kidney stone in addition to the larger kidney stone was him. <laughs> so the, the, the plan, and you, you looked at this and said, there's a kid in there? I mean, now you get these eyes and ears and noses and, yep, must be a kidney stone. So they didn't have the way to treat it in Alaska, so they put us on an Alaska airline and flew us to SeaTac Airport in Tacoma. And it didn't have medical evacuation, so this was Alaska Airlines. Put on a stretcher, you know, walk her up in, lay down the three seats, had a nurse attending. Her first day on the job actually was, was us. <laughs> oh, welcome to the medical world. So <laughs> they flopped down the seats and we fly to Seattle. And the goal was to meet a urologist specialist in Everett, Washington, north of Seattle. He was known for that. He's going to figure it out and know what to do. So he went to SeaTac Aircar, and she's really hurting. Oh, man, she wanted Demerol so badly. I think that's all you said for fit. Give me more Demerol. Honey, I can't. It's all you can handle. So in the ambulance, 50 miles, driving past Seattle into Everett, Washington. We met the urologist specialist. We're kind of like a sailboating playboy. And he just said, oh, we're just going to cut her open. And another guy said, we're not cutting anybody open. I like that guy. <laughs> he, he stood in and said, no one's cutting anybody open. Let's see what's going on here. So he, God gave us a pediatrician who, who said, no, we're going to look at this obstetrician. And, and so they didn't cut her open. And the other guy was kind of fired on the spot. He was why we were there, and we fired him. He was just kind of cavalier. I said, this is our kid. And so the other guy said, let's go slow down, see what's going on. And they were doing amniocentesis with a needle. And then she gave birth. And out came the kidney stone. It was his heel blocking. He was the kidney stone. Blocking her ureter was his heel. Yes. A nine-pound, nine-ounce kidney stone. <laughs> born naturally because of a fear of needles. <laughs> But I'm glad we had someone's opinion about what to do. It, it was beyond our figuring it out. And at some point, it is someone to say, let's do an assessment. That's the point of that. So Jesus says, let's see what's going on here. So he, first of all, he commends them for what they were doing well. And if you've preached it all or studied, you know you never consult Warren Wearsby first. Or you'll never get past his outline. <laughs> <laughs> you consult him after. So I did consult him afterwards, and this is how he described the Ephesian church, a serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church, a separated church, a suffering church. That's good. 
wasn't mine, but it's good. I want to add to that, he said something else came in, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That was good. You've heard the word Nike before? This is Nike Laos. Nike laity. It means to conquer the people. So back in the early days of the church, there was a, a growing priestly class of clergy that lorded over the people, and that was sinful. Pastors are also sheep in, the, in, 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 the, in a local church. And they hated this clergy-laity distinction. It became Catholicism and sacramentalism with all the vestments. We got saved out of that with all the vestments, all the stuff, the clergy-laity distinction. So they were good at separating from all that. So he commended them for what they were a good, sound, fundamental church. A lot of things doing right. They were steadfast. They were, they were solid. They were separated from sin. They rooted out apostates, and they were doing a lot of things well. But, something, but he says something was missing. They're like a well-oiled machine. He said, but I have this against you. And they say, what could that be? We, we have Awana, we have VBS, we have, we have all these ministries and programs, and they're running well. And what could possibly be out of place? He said, well, you've abandoned the love you had at the first. And the word abandon means to toss it aside. They didn't just lose it, they laid it aside, they forsook it and they neglected the great commandment. Everything hangs on love, remember? Loving God and our neighbor, all the law and the prophets hang on that. They'd abandoned the great commandment and were functioning without loving Christ, loving one another, loving lost people. Love had been abandoned. We've been in churches where there's a well-oiled machine, but there's not a spirit of family affection that was gone. You know, if you lose something, you go back and get it. I, I remember going up to, up to camp here for the men's retreat a couple years ago and left on Friday morning to go to the golf outing up at Rice Lake and stopped at McDonald's to have a good, healthy breakfast before my golf match. And um, got on the road and had left my credit card at the McDonald's window. Whew! Found the first legal exit <laughs> and turned around and I didn't rest. I called them and said, hey, yeah, my credit card, we have 30. <laughs> 30 credit, yeah, people leave me here all the time. And really? Oh, that's good news and bad news. Well, I think we might have yours. So I, I didn't rest till I, I got it and I found it. I said, whew, whew. And then my glasses came off. We were turkey hunting one time and shot a turkey and took off my face mask and boom, my glasses went over here. And uh, I said, honey, I just lost my glasses. And so we, uh, you, you'll go look for them fast. And we found them laying in a pasture. She can find anything, by the way. If you lose something, call her. <laughs> she, she is she, she's better than a St. Christopher's medal. And I had Catholic friends growing up back in the day of metal dashboards, and they had a St. Christopher, the finder, the fantasy of lost things. No, she's way better than that. She found them. I, I, I can lose things pretty easily. I'm getting better. Am I getting better? Was that a yes? It wasn't a hearty yes. Yeah, I, I lose them. She finds them. It's my lot in life. I left golf clubs on the green. Um all sorts of stuff. But if you lose something, you they had lost it and had no interest in finding it. Functioning, fundamental church, all the right programs, all the right stuff, not a clue that love was missing. And that was his assessment. Then he gives him an action plan. I want to encourage you, um, part of the action plan would be do an assessment. I think it's good for churches. I work with a lot of them uh, between pastors and say, hey, uh, how are you doing as a church? What's the church history? Uh, where you are spiritually? What are your strengths and weaknesses? And I give them a couple of books to do an assessment. One is called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church by Tom Rayner. I have a ministry friend who won't, meet, won't read it. He's too cowardly. He said it's too depressing. <laughs> it's how churches die. And Tom Rader looked at a bunch of churches, a number of them, and determined these things lead to churches dying. They all had this in common. If a church dies, they had these seven things in common. It's a good thing to do an assessment 
maybe with a pastor, with your deacons, in a Sunday school class, how are you doing? What are your strengths and weaknesses? And these things, and the better you, the sooner you catch these things, the better. You go to see the doctor, and men hate doing this. Men hate going to the doctor. We just put it off. We hate it. Uh, we just hate it. But the sooner you catch things, the better. Some churches catch things too late. I'm working with a church that um, God has their attention. They know they've been in decline, and they know they're unhealthy. They have a good core of people, and they want to start on this roadmap of getting healthy again. And I, I said, that gives me hope. And, one of the, and the deacon said, he said, no, I wonder if we might have waited too long. It's going to be rough. I said, yeah, it's going to be rough. He said, we might have waited too long. I said, you might have. So do a well visit and look at it that way. Do, a, do an assessment. Then he gives him an action plan. This is what he So what do you do? God has retention. We have his assurance. We have an assessment of what we do well, what we do poorly. And he gives him an action plan. This is what Jesus says to do to revitalize a declining church, the church at Ephesus. Number one is remember from where you have fallen. There, it's alliterated, so it's not hard to forget. Remember, the word is to keep on remembering before you fall. Never, never take for granted any future blessing. One pastor friend says, never presume upon the grace of God. Always be diligent about ministry. Remember from where you, I would say, how did we get here? We were like this in the 60s and 70s, 80s, and we had vibrant, we had this. How did we get here? You'd answer the question. Remember, how did you get from there to here? Things that happened. I have on my table in the back corner. Um, I did a little bit of personal insight on what I've experienced in 30 some years in ministry. And you're welcome to take a copy on the back table. Remember, how did we get here? Remember, I encourage you to do it. 15 things I think have happened to fundamentalism to get where we are today as a movement. And you might add to them, subtract them. I encourage you to take one if you like, maybe one per family. I'll make more if we run out, but it's a good way to say, he says, remember, how did you get here? We were talking to one church, and they were a larger church, kind of living off churches, people going from church to church, not really see, seeing people saved. And I met with them between passions and said, um, so what's going on? And the guy said, it's the culture. I said, it's always the culture. I mean, it's really nasty. It's the worst it's been in, in my lifetime, not the worst it's been in the history of the church, though. I said, churches are always losing people. Isn't that depressing? We get old, we die, our kids get married, we, we, we have job changes. We're always losing people out the back door. And they were no longer having people come in the front door by changing churches, no conversions. And one of our larger churches. And blaming the culture. And I said, I don't think it's that. How you, where are the new people going to come from? They didn't have an answer for that because it wasn't people changing churches anymore. In fact, I talked to a different church and I said, uh, what do you want in your new pastor? We want him to bring all the people in. I said, well, <laughs> he is to do the work of an evangelist, but you know he's supposed to equip you to do that? And that's the look I got. He said, whoa. I've been wrong my whole life about what a pastor does. I said, yep, equip you to do the work of ministry. He'll model it, he'll do it, he'll equip you to do it, but it's your job to do it. He said, that was a repentant moment for him. So how did you get here? I can help you with that. This book can help you with that. How did you get from there to here? How did we have get that? Number two, repent. There's that awful, nasty word, and mentioned twice, no less. Repent, and if you don't repent, remove your lamp. So you need to remember and repent. The question is, what needs to change? Ouch. I'm a Baptist. I can change. If I have to, I guess. <laughs> or something like that. Kids have no clue what I just said, but they're not here. Right? We hate change. I don't like all change. I like things the way they work. Change is uncertain. Change, I don't know what's going to happen. I, like Dave said this morning, we like knowing where we're going. But growing is change. Repenting is changing. It means to change the mind. 
metanoewa, to perceive things differently, to think differently, like the prodigal son came to his senses. I'm eating pig's food, my dad's a wealthy man, I've sinned, I'm gonna go back and just be a servant. That was repentance. His something snapped in his mind and it has to change. Ever been lost before and never knew it until later? I remember hunting with my dad with grouse in northern Minnesota one time, and we knew the land well, and, but it got kind of cloudy, and we kind of went around. I thought, I think we're lost. We're going in circles. That was a terrifying moment. Goes, whoa, we're lost. We've been lost for an hour and had no clue. So I saw a familiar tree. I said, we're going in circles, and that woke me up. Repentance means what needs to change. Often includes confession of sin, Repenting of sin is part of it, not all of it. Repenting of sin. Some churches have, as they turn inward and hunkered down against the cultures that are reaching out with the gospel, became dysfunctional, divisive, and sometimes tolerating sin. I know of two churches where young pastors came in to try to deal with generational sin in the church. And the church wouldn't have it. Now, we don't, we don't deal with that. And so they left. Sin in the camp that wouldn't be confronted biblically. They were arrogant, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, to not deal with it. So sometimes it's sin, but I think there's a sin of we've lost our love and repent of having not, not having a love anymore. But, but what needs to change? What needs to be rethought? What could we do differently? The enemies of, of repentance is pride, contentment, and tradition. I remember when we were first saved and had an interest in seeing lost people saved that's kind of come and gone over the years. And, but it's interesting to see, because they, they had lost an interest in lost people. Uh, one of our, our granddaughter, Addie, well, my mother went to be with the Lord uh, back in April, 93 years old, got saved when she was about 50. And God took her quickly and graciously and Addie got saved, uh, when did Addie get saved? Addie's six, she got saved a year and a half ago, I think, or brother Finn is four. So Addie's the big sister. She, she talks to Finn, her younger brother, about great-grandma Capon. Buddy, you just won't see great-grandma again if you don't ask Jesus to save you. Do you want to see her again, yes or no? I will see her again because I'm going to heaven. You aren't. You need to get saved now. Now, I'm okay with that. You need to be blunt with Finn. <laughs> it's just, she's got him pegged. Uh, she's newly saved and concerned about her brother. And so thing, what needs to, re, what needs to change? No more business as usual. No plug and play, do the stuff, same program, plodding along with no thought about whether these are actually making disciples or not. Many things have to be on the table to think about that are not built. We're not talking about doctrine here. We die for things in our articles of faith. Those are the things that make us who we are, biblically based, we, we die for them. But other things we could do differently. Their, their preferences, not really convictions. So we could let them go. We could rethink how we do things. Asking, why do we do that? Uh, one church in our fellowship decided to suspend services on Sunday morning for about six months. That was a hard decision. Meet with another church, kind of get healthy again, figure out what to do. Um, that's what they did. We were in a church a couple weeks ago, and a smaller church in rural Iowa, uh, to say the least, good core of people. And um, I said, maybe you need to ask an area pastor closer to maybe he could help you be an interim and share him for a bit. And they're getting pushback. No, nah, we don't want to share a pastor. Well, you might need to do that for a while. So what could be on the table? Asking, why do we do what we do? With ministry, what's the purpose of VBS? What's the purpose of Sunday school? What's the purpose of asking, why do you do what you do when you do it? It's okay to ask, we never did that years ago. We like uniformity in our fundamentalist movement. Everyone had did the same thing, we like that. Now it's trickier. But you can say, why do we do that without being rebellious? 
1992, we were in Carroll for two years, and um, we had fun. We had all first-generation believers, uh, me, two of the deacons. We had fun. They have a clue what we're doing, but we had fun. <laughs> we just kind of threw out the Baptist traditional book and said, look, and look at the Bible. That's a novel idea. We did. We had no tradition, so we said, let's figure out. So we said, you know, a lot of homeschool families and Sunday's kind of endurance test. Let's see if we can move Sunday night service up to late morning and do it when we're all together. And our people said, you know, I wouldn't mind doing that. And so we did. Nobody did that in 1992, except the liberals. I knew that. A little red flag, church going liberal in Carroll, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so we brought it to a vote. We told the people why we're going to do it. We know from the New Testament. We know what they did when they met. We don't know, why they, we don't know when they met. That's up for, that's, we can talk about that. Missionaries do it all the time. We had missionaries in Argentina that met from 5 o'clock to 10 o'clock Sunday night. We go, yay! But don't do it here. <laughs> we defined what we did. We said, well, how about a service for fellowship? We had a purpose first, then what if we do that? How about when we're all ready together? I said, that's a good plan. Present it to the church to vote. And um, the only people against it was a single woman who wasn't a member, and a couple that never came Sunday night anyway. So we did it in 1992. I got hate mail, anonymous hate mail that said, what are you going to do? What are your kids going to do? I said, well, they're going to go to church when you have church. <laughs> and they do, right? No, I don't care when you, but they go to church when you have church. And uh, we got reported to the National GRBC. Council of 18, we got reported to one of their churches was going liberal. That was us. So I got a letter back from Bill Ruddy. He said, good for you. <laughs> Way to think outside the box. This is great. And so I, I still have the letters, the, the hate mail and the good one. <laughs> we said, why do we do what we do? Many of our convictions are just really preferences and to give up our agenda and yield to our rights. You're going to get pushback for this. It will challenge people's thinking about what church really is. It's going to take work. You might have to cancel some ministries and add some different ones. Restructure your service times and why you do and when you meet. Some people might not know who they are if they can't do this in the church. Had a friend one time in one of our churches who came to me one day and said, Pastor, he said, I just, I've never elected deacon here. I said, yeah. I, I was a deacon in the church I was in before. I just think it should happen. And I said, I'm not running a campaign to not elect you as deacon. You just need to know that. <laughs> but I just, I just don't understand. I said, you know, you love people. Why not witness to people and disciple them? Because not many people are doing that. He said, I, I know, but I just, I just think I should be a deacon. He didn't know who he was if he wasn't a deacon. Isn't that sad? We had a gal who played the piano that, that couldn't even sh hardly share it with younger kids. That was her identity. It was his identity. And that might need to change. He eventually left the church. So you need to think outside the box. It will threaten some people's influence that have influence of power in the church. You know, one, one church in our fellowship, a larger church a few years ago, took their deacons to a uh, leadership retreat and the deacon came back and said, Pastor, we're really good at doing church and terrible at making disciples. That's a good moment. And things began to change. So we have to repent and change what needs to change. Number three is return or repeat or reclaim the Great Commission. He said to go back and do the work you did at the first. Now, the first work, I think, is the gospel. Uh, that's the first importance of 1 Corinthians 15 is the gospel and our mission is the first work, I believe, that abandoned the great commandment and the great commission had been abandoned. It was lost. It would go back and do the first, work you did at the first. When you were a church plant and the church at Ephesus grew and people got saved and they burned all of their idols and burned all their books and go back and did it the first, it abandoned love and abandoned evangelism to make disciples. They strayed from their mission and 
um, time to get it back and make it a priority. And so you need to jumpstart the process of reclaiming the Great Commission as your mission. Can't tell you how many churches we have been in and we're thankful for each one of them to work with them. And I always ask a question, how many adults saved in the last five years? And a lot of times the answer is none. So what are you doing to reach lost people? And we've had people say, well, you know, we don't really have a plan. They were honest. One church said, well, we just hope they come and hope they come back. I said, well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to come to your church. They didn't tell them that, but you wouldn't want to come back if you came. And we abandoned. How is it that fundamental churches, all about getting people saved, lost that? I don't get that. We got saved at the age of 28 and 26, and Baptists were known for the scriptures, the Savior, separation, and people getting saved. The revivalist days in the 1960s and 70s had their flaws, but at least they wanted to see people saved. It centered around people getting saved, and we somehow lost it, became content. Maybe the 1960s turned us to a bunker mentality, it's in my article here, turned inward, inward focus, and lived off the old fruit. Never saw the decline, never concerned about lost people getting saved, no connections with them, and years go by until there's nobody left. I'll tell you, one person getting saved will change the whole dynamic of your church. One adult conversion by strategically focusing neighbors and friends and family and God blessing and opening hearts, you're going to believe the gospel still works. <laughs> it works on adults. And my, my neighbor, my co-worker, my, the guy I do business with could be my taxidermist. You have a taxidermist, right? You don't? What is wrong with you people? You have a dentist and a doctor and someone who serves you at a restaurant and a mechanic, right? There are people you can get to know. And then they come to Christ and bring them to the family and go, this is a new believer and isn't that exciting? Because it's new life. We all love babies. And adult Christian babies, like I said, are messy, but we love them because they have all sorts of interesting questions and pad answers won't work for them. You better know what you believe because they're going to know why do you do this? Why do you do that? I don't know. We do it because we did it. That's not going to work with them. And it stretches you and grows you because it's life. So many churches just need someone to get saved and bring life to the church. That's why we're here. We're a lampstand. <laughs> we have the gospel. And it's supposed to be to the end of the age. And God is still saving people. I got a text from a guy, pastor of fellowship, and he's a... Uh, a wonderful young pastor, not, a, not a, a dynamic personality. He said three adults got saved and getting baptized next Sunday. Wanted me to know that. He got it. It'll change your life. It'll change your church's life to focus on people getting saved. You need to learn from others. Model it, equip them, do, be an example. Pastors, you, you're gonna, it's going to have to start with you. A lot of times, in our first church in South Des Moines, uh, trying to get the church on board, and they just weren't getting it, and I went to, uh, I went to Indianapolis on a, what's that? Okay. Okay, I'm good. Sometimes I don't know what I said, and she's kind of like my little buffer over here to say, that was really dumb. Type of thing. It's in a good way. Um, went to Indianapolis on a class trip for faith and looked, sat in on a staff. And I, I met with the senior pastor. He had started the church of 100 people, had been split, and said, I'm just going to have to do it. So he went out, saw people saved, and grew the church. And that was 1,500 people, planted 20 churches. And I spent a Thursday evening with him going to a home Bible study when nobody was doing that. Wow. He said, You're just going to have to do it. I said, okay, do the work on evangelists. I, I, we, we had a purpose, and Doug Farrell and I pastored in South Des Moines for a bit, and we went out and knocked on doors, and, and we followed up on people, and people came to Christ. Uh, a gal was a checker at a, a high V, and helicopter pilot was a homeschool family, and God began to save people for this first time in the life of that church in a long time. And by God's grace, it grew. 
We had no, didn't know what to do with it, but it was fun. But it brought new life, and so we need to be, reclaim a Great Commission focus, and pastor's just going to have to begin with you. Invest in a few faithful people. Lead your deacons to do an assessment of your church. If this is too depressing, I'll read it anyway. This is the second book, Anatomy of a Revived Church. It came from this book. People said, Tom Rayner, uh, what happens with churches when they turn the corner? I said, well, this is what a revived church looks like. I encourage you to get the book, use it as an assessment and an action plan. The churches that lived again had this in common, so I encourage you to use it as an assessment as well. You know, ask for help. The ministry partners that will come alongside and help. It's going to take time, going to take, have resistance, going to be hard work. But begin to pray for lost people by name. We're in churches about every Sunday, sometimes Wednesday nights, we see long lists of prayer requests. Noticeably missing are typically people prayed for by names for salvation. A lot of health needs, I get the health needs, I'm getting older, we have more of them all the time. I get praying for health needs and job needs, and we ought to. And maybe a symbolic pray for the lost tacked on the end. But how about pray for Joe, my neighbor? I don't know how to get to know him, I want to start up a friendship, pray for an open door with him. We're not praying like that. If I was to do things differently, and if I pastored again, every fifth prayer request had to be about a person that's unsaved that you know. But we stop. You, you can start with that. I would do that differently. And start praying for people by name. And we, we pray for people by name and pray for, Lord, give us something to work with. And he did. Why would God not do that? It's not on our radar. You can put it on your radar again to make it a priority. to Pray for people by name that you want to get to know or could get to know to open a door for the gospel, just even to make a friend. We'll talk about how to do that tomorrow. And reclaim a great commission for Churches that are doing this are growing by conversion growth. Some of them are small, some of them are big. Size is irrelevant of the church, but the pastor catches the vision, the people get on board, and the people saying, I could, I could do a John study with my neighbor. We'll talk about that tomorrow. And they're seeing people saved, so you have to reclaim the Great Commission. Number five, we'll finish with this. Jesus holds them accountable. He has their attention, given them assurances, gave them an assessment. Here's the action plan. Now he holds them accountable. What happens if we don't? Because we could just do a say, let's just keep what we're doing and pray that God will bless. We've had people tell us that. Let's keep doing what we're doing, keep the doors open, and pray that God will someday just bring all the people in. Ah. What happens if we don't? Well, Jesus said, if you do not, I'll remove your lampstand. Oh, but Jesus promised to build his church. No, he promised to build his church, not your church necessarily. He'll always add people to the body of Christ, but people coming to Christ until the end of the age, till the rapture, he will build his church, but individual churches can die, and they have because they did this. You have no guarantee your church will live. Christ might remove your lampstand, and he has. He did this one probably five years later. These churches likely no longer existed. They didn't. Since we started nine years ago, six churches have closed their doors in our fellowship. Six of them. It's always sad. It's a long-term, long-time way to get there. My predecessor, Joe Hayes, said, Tim, when a church closes, a lot of things contributed to that over years, but they all had one thing in common. People stopped getting saved, and they stopped trying to win them. So it demands a response from us. Choices have consequences. We can't just keep doing what we're doing and hope it's different. We can't choose to do nothing. <laughs> These are not an option, so he gives them a warning. If you do not repent, I'll remove your lampstand. I think it means more than removing their effectiveness, he will shut them down if we do not. And say so they had to be willing to listen to this. He said, let him hear what the Spirit said to the churches. So as you sit here, remember the church, this is God speaking to you. 
that you would hear what the Spirit says to you, to hear what he's saying, and that means to be attentive, implies understanding and eagerness and agreement and an obedience to do this. It requires all of that to hear. We were working with a church uh, for about a year and a half, myself and a local church and a mission agency, and trying to rethink and revitalize the church. And it, it was like the proverbial pulling teeth for them to understand how urgent it was. And so we took a vote for them to partner with this mission agency and kind of like, oh yeah, oh yeah. No heart agreement. Almost like it sounds dumb if we don't. But they weren't really in and pretty soon they said, ah, oh, we don't want to do this. We're just do what we did. And so they, they shut it off. Called a pastor and they're just existing. No heart agreement. And then we had to be working together. We talked about that last, working together uh, within a local church, pastors and people and using the gifts that's given us and pastors equipping, working together, everyone doing his work, doing the work of ministry as the messenger and individual working together to see his church built. That's the roadmap. So I don't know where your church is. Probably shouldn't say, run to your pastor and say, Pastor, I just heard our church is dying. What are you going to do about it? Please, and Tim, Tim Capon said to go talk to you. Oh, please don't do that. But if you're a pastor, maybe it's, maybe it's time to take a look. Where is your church health-wise to take a look? Maybe deacons say we need to do an assessment. See, where are we? How healthy are we? I mean, the sooner the better. As a member of church, you know, you start with yourself. Maybe you need to repent. And remember, I'll go back to the first work. And it's terrible. We'll talk about tomorrow how to share the gospel, because we were talking about how to share the gospel with people and reclaim a gospel focus. So pray about it. Maybe talk to your pastor and say, Pastor, um, I'm just concerned about the health of our church. I love to help any way I can. There's something we could do to think this through. I think you could say something like that. But the sooner the better you catch it. There are churches that reach a tipping point, and they're done. It's always sad. So not a fun subject, but this is where our movement has been. On the flip side of that, there are churches every week, every month, that are getting the idea and repenting and reclaiming a gospel focus and seeing people saved and breathing life into their church. And I know one little church in a town that... It's a mile off the road. They do have a Casey's with the best ice cream in the county, I heard. But it's like two blocks wide is the town. They had 25 people, now they have 70 people. Most of them by conversion growth and, and adults in about a year and a half. A pastor with an evangelistic heart and praying for lost people, and we were there a couple weeks ago, and there, it's, it's alive again. <laughs> it's amazing. And I talked to a guy, like I mentioned last night, had been saved for a year and a half, and he's in his 50s, and talked about working for Christ and getting saved, and it's, it's, it's happening. And so I, I want to give you hope today that Jesus loves his churches and still cares about his churches but we're going to have to follow this roadmap for him to bless. It's going to be hard work. I don't make any bones. It's going to be three to five years with hard work to see if God will bless the efforts of our local church. But don't go down without a fight, this kind of a fight. Don't just throw in the towel. Don't just say that we're done. So this is the roadmap. To get our attention, give us assurances, Give us an assessment, an action plan, and then some accountability. And if we don't, this is what he will do. So this is kind of your doctor visit for today. Where the benefit of something doing what we do, we get the big picture perspective is happening in churches. Even those outside of our fellowship, I work with those as well and have the same type of thing. And this always works. Either they neglect it and they die or they, get, or they do this and they have new life. It's actually fun to watch. So what would God have you to do today? We talk about this. Encourage you to think through these. Through. These could be good questions to ask yourself in some, some time together. You know, how do we get here? What needs to change? How can I make the gospel priority again in my personal life? Begin to pray for lost people. What could I do to be part of this roadmap to revitalizing his church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for Christ, 
King of kings and Lord of lords coming again. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the firstborn from the dead. Alive from the dead to give life to those who will trust him and to breathe life into his churches. Father, thank you that he still loves his churches and longs to help them, longs to build them. Father, help us to do the hard things. Remembering is hard. Repenting is hard. Reclaiming what was lost can be hard, but Father, with your help, with your grace, we pray that we would obey Christ with this, trust him for this. Father, we have been given God, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's the brand. To make an appeal to lost people, to be reconciled with God, that's what writing for the brand is about. Representing Christ to a lost world that needs him. And Lord, our world is really a mess. And in need of the gospel that we can bring to people. To see them come to Christ, added to his church, added to our churches, to give them hope. Father, help us to be willing to be part of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.